0: An Air Canada DC-9 is on its way to Toronto, Canada when an in-flight emergency causes the plane to make an emergency landing in Cincinnati, Kentucky. What caused the mysterious circumstances behind this emergency descent?
1: Before we get into our show today, we would like to share with you a new podcast
2: we've found. It's called the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, and the host, Jay Schiffman tells his story and interviews people who have lived through experiences with mental health and substance misuse and
1: recovery.
0: 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined each year. These numbers are shocking and eye-opening for many, us included.
1: The three of us have had some sort of experiences with both mental health and substance misuse, either with ourselves or with our friends and family. We are sure some of you have had experiences of your own around
0: these topics.
2: Jay is trying to end the stigma behind these topics and normalize these difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability.
0: These topics need to be talked about, and we hope you will consider listening to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, which can be found on your favorite podcast app now.
1: Again, check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast app
0: now. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have Kara. Mm-hmm. Woo! Kara's back. It's been a long time. It has. We planned this to be in April of last year.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this year. year.
1: Well, this year. You guys, you guys know what I mean. It's because
0: I, you guys think in school years. I do
1: think in
3: school
0: years.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, Kara? Kara. It's good. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've been hearing that I should be very excited about this particular crash for a long time. So yeah.
0: Excited is a weird word to use for that, because this is a horrible thing, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, what
1: are we covering today, Nick? Oh, thanks! <laughs> I almost forgot my line. <laughs> oh, no!
0: <laughs> so, today we are covering Air Canada Flight 797. A bunch of aviation enthusiasts just went, <gasps> oh, That one. That one. If you know what that is, then you know what we're talking about.
1: Welcome.
0: You're in for a ride. So this accident occurred on June 2nd of 1983. This was a DC-9, a Douglas DC-9-32. Talked about a DC-9 recently. DC-9 is a twin turbo engine, turbo jet engine, mounted at the rear, so on the tail, basically, of the airplane. And it was just a general medium-sized airplane. Four passengers. This one had the tail number of Charlie Dash, Foxtrot, Tango, Lima, Uniform. Canadian. Canadians. Because Air Canada, so I'd be really concerned if that was from, like, Mongolia or something. <laughs> yeah. The flight was to be from Dallas to Montreal with a stopover in Toronto. We will be talking about the leg from Dallas to Toronto. The captain for the flight was Donald Cameron. He was 51 years old. He had 13,000 hours total, of which he had 4,939 on the DC-9. So, decent amount of experience on the DC-9. The first officer was Claude. We met? I don't know. I think it's We May. I'm not
1: It's probably French. Yeah, it's very it's French. French. It's
0: definitely French. He was 34 years old. He had 5,650 hours total, of which 2,499 hours were on the DC-9. So, both of them had a decent amount of experience on the DC-9. They weren't new to the airplane. This flight was to have five crew and 41 passengers.
2: It was like half full, I think.
0: Yeah, it was even probably a little less than half full. Eh, might have been about half full. The airplane departed Dallas at 425 p.m. Central Daylight Time. They climbed to their assigned cruising altitude of flight level 330, or 33,000 feet. Except for a deviation to the south from their filed flight plan... To avoid some weather, the flight was going completely normally. The flight passed into Indianapolis Air Route Traffic Control Center's airspace, and at 6.51 and 14 seconds Eastern Standard Time, three circuit breakers associated with the aft lavatory, the flush motor for the aft lavatory, popped on the wall behind the captain. They tripped in a rapid succession, noted by the captain as sounding like a machine gun. The motor is a three-phase motor for the lavatory, running on AC power, and each one of those phases incorporates a single breaker, so therefore three breakers for the three phases. After the flight crew identified the three circuit breakers that had popped, the captain immediately attempted to reset them, but they did not reset. The captain assumed that the flush motor must have seized and could not be immediately reset. This was apparently somewhat common on the DC-9. Occasionally the motor would pop so that it wouldn't, you know, it would pop the breaker so that it wouldn't cause any issues because you know somebody flushed a lot something something
2: (laughs) i think the first officer specifically said on the cvr must have been a rag
0: yeah something like that Why
1: would you flush a rag
0: people do weird things on airplanes
1: i don't okay i hate going to the bathroom on an airplane much less flushing random crap down the toilet So, I've never actually gone into the bathroom on an airplane,
2: which made this investigation for me a little confusing. I was like, what? Where?
0: I'm confused. And airplane toilets are definitely not your normal toilet. If you've never used one before, they are not filled with any liquid at all. They just are a massive suction that just pulls right out into the tank in the bottom of the airplane. They do flush a, a cleaning fluid through it each time, but it doesn't hold liquid in a standing state.
1: it's not like a normal toilet.
0: It makes an absolutely horrendous sound when you're standing in it. Yeah. So. I wouldn't know. At 6.59 p.m. and 58 seconds, so eight minutes later, the captain again tried to reset the circuit breakers, hoping to get the motor working again to avoid any bad smells coming from the lavatory for the passenger's sake. The attempt was also unsuccessful, though. He told the first officer that the breakers just pop as I push it, So, in other words, they just, as he'd push them in, they wouldn't stay in. They'd just pop right back out. Not much they could do at that point. At 7 p.m., a passenger seated in the last row asked a flight attendant to identify a strange odor that smelled like smoke of some kind. The flight attendant thought that the odor may be coming from the aft laboratory.
1: Hmm. (laughs) You don't say...
0: Yep. She took a CO2 fire extinguisher from the cabin wall and opened the lavatory door a few inches to see inside. She could see that there was a light gray smoke that had filled the lavatory from the floor to the ceiling, but there was no flame apparent. She had accidentally inhaled some of the smoke while inspecting the lavatory before closing the door. That flight attendant then asked the other flight attendant nearby to notify the lead flight attendant at the front of the airplane about the situation. That flight attendant went forward, then went forward and informed the lead flight attendant that there was a fire in the lavatory. The lead flight attendant immediately instructed the f- the other flight attendant to inform the captain about the fire, then go assist the flight attendant still at the rear to move passengers forward. He also informed her to open the eyebrow air vents above the passenger seats to direct air to the rear of the cabin. The lead flight attendant then took the fire extinguisher and opened the lavatory door about 3 quarters open and saw no flame, but a fair amount of smoke. He saw thick black smoke coming out of the seams in of the walls, at the top of the wash basin, and the ceiling. He then proceeded to saturate the washroom with CO, so with... CO2. CO2. But that's the quote, is to saturate the washroom with CO. Okay. By spraying the paneling and the seams that were pouring smoke, and sprayed the door to the trash bin in the bathroom, and then closed the lavatory door.
1: For those of you who don't know, fires feed off of oxygen... So the best way to stop that is CO2 is the opposite of oxygen, so it smothers it. Basically. That's the idea behind using a CO2 fire extinguisher.
0: Yes. We'll get more depth in-depth with that later on. At 7.02 p.m. and 40 seconds, the other flight attendant reached the cockpit and told the captain, quote, excuse me, there's a fire in the washroom in the back. They just went to go put it out. The captain immediately requested the first officer go to inspect the lavatory, The captain then donned his his oxygen mask and selected 100% oxygen on the regulator, so he just went full bore. The first officer left the cockpit without smoke goggles or oxygen as the plane was not equipped with portable oxygen or full smoke masks, nor was it required to. It did have basic smoke goggles, however, that he also did not bring with him to the back of the airplane. The first officer was not able to reach the aft lavatory because the smoke, which had migrated over the last three to four rows of seats, was too thick. The lead flight attendant then told the first officer what he had seen when he had opened the door to the lavatory, and that he had discharged the fire extinguisher, and that there was no clear source of the fire. The first officer stated that he did not believe that the fire was coming from the trash bin, and told the lead flight attendant he was going to retrieve some smoke goggles, the ones he left behind. You'll find this is a common theme.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: At 7.04 and 7 seconds, the first officer returned to the cockpit and told the captain that the smoke had prevented him from getting to the laboratory. He told the captain that he thought, quote, we'd better get down, end quote. So in other words, they'd better start descending. Go somewhere.
3: Where were they at at this point?
0: At this point, they were over Kentucky, basically. Okay. At 7.04 p.m. and 16 seconds... Before the captain could even respond to the first officer, the lead flight attendant came into the cockpit and informed the captain that he didn't, quote, have to worry. I think it's going to be easing up, end quote. So now there's conflicting information. The first officer has said he thinks they should descend, and the lead flight attendant says, oh, I think the situation's calming down. Don't worry about it.
1: I would say go with the first officer.
0: Well, we'll get into
2: that. Only
1: because... (laughs)
2: Better safe than sorry.
1: Yeah. It's always better, especially since there's a fire somewhere. Like, there's smoke coming from somewhere, at least. And what's the phrase? And where there's smoke? There's fire. So, it's better to land and get the fire out. Or get the fire out first, I guess. If you can. But land and get everybody off instead of staying in the air and potentially making it a very dangerous situation.
0: We'll get deep into that, because there's a lot behind what you just said. Great. <laughs> the first officer looked back into the cabin and said that it was almost clear in the back. So, obviously, the smoke was clearing up. At 7.04 p.m. and 23 seconds, the first officer said, quote, It's starting to clear now, end quote, and again offered to go back to the, the, back, the, la- the back laboratory. He offered this to the captain. The captain did want him to. The captain handed the first officer his smoke goggles, as the first officer was still standing, and in order for him to get his, he would have had to go get back into his seat and reach for his smoke goggles. And the captain was kind of hurrying him along, so he just grabbed his and handed them to the the first officer to go back to the back. At 7.04 p.m. and 46 seconds, the captain told the first officer to go to the aft again. They did not discuss the type of fire at all during that period of time that the first officer was in the cockpit.
3: Do they know what type of fire it is at this point? Yeah, I was going to say, they
1: don't really know anything about it. No, but here's
0: the thing. The first officer didn't even say anything about thinking about the fire being part of the trash bin or not. So at this point, the captain still thinks it is. Oh. You'll see why that's important in a minute. At 7.06 p.m. and 52 seconds, while the first officer was at the aft of the airplane, the lead flight attendant re-emphasized that the smoke was clearing. The captain still believed that it was a trash bin fire, and he expected it to be put out So he did not descend at that moment. The first officer reached the aft lavatory and intended to look inside, but the door handle was hot to the touch, so he opted not to open it, and he instructed the flight attendants not to open it either.
1: Probably a good idea. Yes. If the door handle's hot, there's most likely some sort of uh, heat source on the other side. Yeah. A heat source that wants oxygen. Exactly. So opening the door would only make it worse.
0: Yep. During this time, at 7.05 p.m. and 35 seconds, the airplane experienced a series of electrical malfunctions, including the airplane's left AC and DC electrical systems, which lo- both lost power. Now, this aft laboratory is on the left side of the fuselage, so this starts to make a little bit of sense. If there's a fire, it might be burning through the electrical on the left side.
2: And what time did you say that was?
0: This was at 7.05 and 35 seconds. Okay. At 7.06 p.m. and 12 seconds, the captain informed Indianapolis Center to stand by because the flight had an electrical problem. Mind you, at this point, they still have the right side electrical. 30 to 45 seconds later, the Louisville High Radar Sector Controller, who was working that flight, lost the flight's radar beacon and instead saw a plus sign with its data block. So they could still see the general information about the airplane, but it had changed symbols indicating that it wasn't properly reporting to the radar.
1: So there was a problem with their transponder.
0: There was a problem with the transponder because there was a problem with the electricals. Right. Yep. Oh, okay. The first officer then saw another flight attendant signaling to him to hurry back to the cockpit. The first officer returned to the cockpit and took his seat at 7 7 and 11 seconds. He informed the captain, quote, I don't like what's happening. I think we better go down. Okay. End quote. The captain understood and agreed, hinting from the first officer's voice that the fire was out of control.
1: Yeah, panic. Yeah. Panic!
0: <laughs> now the captain's getting it, and he's a little bit in a panic mode, because also things are failing. At 7.07pm and 41 seconds, the master warning light and annunciator lights illuminated and indicated that the emergency AC and DC electrical buses lost power as well. These were the backup systems.
3: So, how much of this, like, is affecting how well they're actually flying through the air?
0: At this point, it doesn't affect any anything major, in theory. At least they don't think so, yet. So, the airplane's still flying smoothly, and what they do know is that they're losing some electrical power, so they're losing some of their systems.
1: You don't have to have full electrical power to fly the airplane. No. So, as long as they have flight surfaces in control?
0: Yeah, they're control surfaces, and as long as they have engines, which engines don't run on electricity, thankfully, so yeah. those so, continue to operate. So they
3: still okay right now. Yep. Yeah.
0: Both pilots' attitude indicators, however, tumbled. This is what gives them an idea of where the horizon is. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So they just flopped because their gyro operated. And when the electrical power is off, the gyro stops spinning and it falls. Oh, boy. Which also means that it takes several minutes for it to come back up. Because it takes several minutes for the gyro to come back to center. The captain ordered the first officer to activate the emergency power switch, directing battery power to the emergency AC and DC buses. The attitude indicators began coming back online. So thankfully, they were going to have those back. However, the stabilizer trim was inoperative because of the loss of AC power, and it remained so during the rest of the flight. This meant that the captain had to use a lot of force to control the airplane. So we're talking about the pitch trim, so the trim on the elevator that holds the airplane in a stable state in cruise is not working anymore. So now, in order for him to descend the airplane, he had to put 44 pounds of pressure on the control yoke just to bring the airplane down a little bit, because he couldn't trim it down forward with the, the airplane's automatic systems and then be able to control from there for a further pitch. So the pitch trim wasn't working, because it was electrical. At 7.08 p.m. and 12 seconds, Flight 797 called the radar controller at Indianapolis Center and said, quote, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. The Louisville controller acknowledged the call. At 7.08 p.m. and 47 seconds, the flight told the controller that they had a fire and they were going down. The controller told the flight they were that they were 25 nautical miles from Cincinnati and asked, can you possibly make Cincinnati? The flight crew reported that they could make it. The air traffic controller then cleared them down to 5,000 feet. At 7.09 p.m. and 5 seconds, the flight reported that it was leaving flight level 330, so they were leaving their cruising altitude. They then requested vectors to Cincinnati and declared an emergency. They had changed their transponder to 7700 code, which is an emergency code. Anything with 77 at the beginning is an emergency code.
2: I think we talked about that in Aloha.
0: Yeah, I think so. So they changed their transponder to 7700, but the transponder was not working because of the loss of electrical power. So this wasn't showing up on the radar for the controllers.
3: So this is the same thing where they're still showing up as a plus sign? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yep. At 7.09 p.m. and 29 seconds, the air traffic controller directed them to turn to 060 degrees and told them that the Cincinnati airport was at 12 o'clock and 20 miles. So they just had to make it another 20 miles. At 7.09 p.m. and 17 seconds, an air traffic controller had contacted the Cincinnati airport TRACON, which is the basically the departure and approach control center for the airport, to alert them to the emergency aircraft. The flight was then handed off to the TRACON controller. The approach controller at the TRACON facility then informed the Cincinnati Tower about the emergency airplane and informed them to deploy the emergency vehicles at Cincinnati. The firefighters were advised that there was an inbound flight with an electrical fire coming from the rear lavatory, so they were prepared. At 7.10 p.m. and 25 seconds, the flight contacted the approach controller and declared an emergency again and informed them that they were descending. All basic stuff. They already knew all this, but they're nervous. The approach controller acknowledged this and informed them to plan for an ILS, or instrument landing system, approach for runway 36, and requested that they turn right to 090.
1: Would catching the ILS work if they didn't have any electrical power?
0: That was kind of the problem. Okay. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute because they didn't end up doing that anyways for a whole different reason. Okay. 7.10 p.m. and 48 seconds, the flight informed the controller that there was a fire in the aft lavatory and the cabin was filling with smoke. The air traffic controller then asked, "Say, type airplane, number of people on board, and amount of fuel. The first officer responded that he would supply the information later because, quote, I don't have time now, end quote. At 7.12 p.m. and 44 seconds, the flight requested the cloud ceilings at the airport. The controller told him that the ceiling was at 2,500 scattered, and 8,000 overcast with 12 miles of visibility and light rain. So, there were some clouds, but they were high enough. It wasn't going to be much of an issue. At the time, the air traffic controller could tell that the flight was too high and fast to make the landing for runway 36. They were 8 nautical miles south of the threshold and 3 nautical miles east of the center line at 8,000 feet, and going way too fast. At that moment, the air traffic controller decided that runway 27 left would be the better option for landing. At 7.13 p.m. and 38 seconds... The flight was unable to tell the air traffic controller their heading because the heading instruments were now inoperative. That's a problem. So now they don't know which direction they're going.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. The approach controller asked the flight to turn left. At 7.14 p.m. in three seconds, he then informed the flight crew that it would be a no-gyro, so in other words, they didn't have the gyro-operated instruments, radar approach for runway 27 left. then cleared them to descend to 3,500 feet.
3: So I thought the gyro instruments came back up. Did they stop working again?
0: The, that's the thing. They ended up stop. They did stop working again. The attitude indicator, I believe, was still operating on the emergency, but the their heading indications had stopped working. So that sucks.
2: Which is also run on a gyro, right?
0: Yes. Generally, yes.
2: So it's a great time. Oh, boy.
0: He informed the flight that they were 12 nautical miles southeast of the airport and cleared them to land on runway 27 left. The Approach Controller then informed the tower at Cincinnati of the runway change, so they had to then move all of the emergency vehicles over to the to other the runway. the other
1: runway, yeah.
0: At 7.15pm and 11 seconds, the flight reported that it was level at 2,500 feet. 16 seconds later, they informed the tower that they were VFR now, so they could see out the windows. The Approach Controller continued to vector the flight to the runway. The flight descended to 2,000 feet at 7.17pm and 11 seconds, the air traffic controller again requested the number of people and amount of fuel on board, to which the flight crew responded, quote, "We don't have time, it's getting worse here." End quote.
3: So I'm assuming they need to know that for a reason,
0: right? Yes, because they yeah. need to know if the airplane ends up well, crashing up basically in a ball on the ground, yeah. They need to know how many people were on it and how much fuel to expect will go up in flames. Yeah.
1: So how explosive is this going to be and how many people are expected to be on the plane?
3: Okay. And nobody's giving this information. That's well, good. so to be
1: fair, they're kind of freaking out because they don't know where this fire came from Okay. and they couldn't see flames, but the cabin's filling with smoke and they're starting to lose instrument power so they got some on. other stuff to yeah, worry about I, I mean yeah. it's, it's kind of a okay for them to be a little scattered you know to be like I don't have time to do that I'm trying to figure out how to fly the airplane without a heading I don't know what to do because the first rule is to
2: always fly the plane okay right. okay.
1: That's so fair. I mean it's, it's a little bit of a big deal that they haven't given that information but it's not a huge deal I mean they have manifests and stuff that they can work off of but it's not great gonna, yeah it's it's it's, all of it's just not great.
0: <laughs> You'll see how much of a mess this was shortly. At 7.17 p.m. and 35 seconds, the flight reported that they had the airport in sight. The approach controller then cleared the flight again to land. At 7.18 p.m. and 48 seconds, the air traffic controller told the flight that it was only three nautical miles out from the runway. The approach controller then contacted the tower again and asked if they could visually see the flight. They did, as the plane was about two nautical miles out at that point. The approach controller then requested that the tower inform him when the flight had landed. Obviously, the approach controller was pretty fully vested in getting this airplane safely to the ground. At 7.20 p.m. in nine seconds, the tower had reported that the flight had landed. So now let's back up. Back on the airplane, as the airplane descended, the smoke constantly moved forward, filling the entire passenger cabin, and it had entered the cockpit, The first officer had left the smoke goggles in the aft end of the airplane when he left the lavatory. Bruh.
1: Okay. Listen.
0: Luckily, there were two sets of goggles stored in the first officer's side of the cockpit. So they (laughs)
1: expected (laughs) stupid. They went, you know what? Someone's gonna cause a stupid, so I'm gonna put an extra pair over here.
0: But here's where things get even more complicated, because he had two sets, so they still would have had two sets in the cockpit to use. He handed a set to the captain... And then he still opted not to use one, the what? first officer.
1: His brain was, like, freaking out to the point Yes, that something was weird. He just couldn't remember to use smoke alcohols.
2: He opted not
0: to use them. He felt he could see just fine.
1: But that was another thing that was piling
2: on on top of, hey, can you give us the passenger account? Right. The entire cockpit is filled with smoke. Right. So can they see paper?
0: Oh, right. yep,
2: that makes sense. Yeah.
0: The captain and the first officer used their oxygen masks all the way through to the landing. They both used them at 100% O2. The captain did have trouble seeing the instruments only on final because of the thick smoke in the cockpit. So it took that long, but unfortunately at the most critical point, now he can't see very well. He was saying that he would have to lean forward to see the instruments. The cockpit door was left open throughout the entire descent. This is what helped Pour smoke into the cockpit.
1: So, okay, I can kind of see both sides of this, right? Because I think one hand was they were trying to keep it open so they could talk to the flight attendants. So that makes sense. Yeah, because the PA system was dead. Right. Ah. But also, maybe not so you don't
0: fill the cockpit with smoke. Well, okay, so here's the thing. I can get into that a little bit because it turns out in Air Canada's operating procedures the lead flight attendant is always supposed to maintain, or a flight attendant is always supposed to maintain contact with the crew through the entire emergency per their standard operating procedures during a cabin fire. So, in theory, yes, this was their way of talking because the PA system was non-functional.
2: Because it runs on electrical. Electricity, yeah. yep. Oh,
1: man.
2: Yeah, this is a bad time <laughs> not for everyone. Good. This nope. is
1: a, an actual
0: dumpster fire. Also during the distance- hey. <laughs> <laughs> A crapshoot, one might call it. It's a shit show. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I have been wanting to use that the whole time, and I avoided it, but it couldn't wait anymore. (laughs) Also, as they were descending, the cabin crew had been preparing the passengers for the emergency landing, moving them forward, giving them wet cloths to put over their faces to make it easier to breathe, as many of them were quite literally suffocating, on the smoke. They were choking, and it was really hard to breathe. A lot of them were suffering from pain in their throat and their nose.
2: It's a very acrid smoke. It is.
0: Yeah.
3: So, are they wearing the oxygen masks? Or- they so- are not. So-, so, per standard operating
2: procedures, I think for any airline, you can only drop the oxygen mask during decompression. So, if the cabin loses pressure. Plus, opening those compartments, if the smoke's coming from the walls that might allow more smoke into the cabin and also oh. you're also, talking you about could
1: potentially feed the fire
2: with, with the all oxygen with all the oxygen
0: from the okay. mask so
1: there's a no lot of oxygen. reasons not so, to do that uh, and the captain and the first officer's oxygen's hooked up to a separate system and they have masks that cover their entire face so right. it's it's different for them and they also need it right so if you pass out cuz you're you know choking on smoke or whatever. You're not going to cause the airplane to crash. Right. So it's more important for the crew to get oxygen than it is for the passengers at this point.
0: There's a lot of factors behind this, but the most important thing is is all these passengers feel really trapped because they're all suffocating from smoke. They don't have the oxygen to use. They can't get out of this thing. You know, it's, it's terrible. It's terrifying. It's a pretty terrifying experience.
1: It's good on the... Flight attendants, though, for giving them moist towels to put over their faces.
2: Also for telling them how to open the emergency exits, as that was not protocol at the time. That
0: was going to be my next thing. They individually informed each one of the passengers what to expect for the landing, as the PA system wasn't working. And then they went around to each one of the emergency exit rows and informed the passengers on how to open the exit doors. This was not part of normal procedures at the time. So this was good, but also kind of weird like why? why wasn't that already a thing
1: (laughs) this is a learning point for aviation (laughs) after this crash yes also there's only
2: three flight attendants and four exits so someone had Uh, to
0: learn yeah yeah technically there's six exits
2: but ain't no one going to the back of the plane
0: well not in the back oh there's four overwings
2: oh yeah
0: that when the captain sighted the runway he extended the landing gear and since the horizontal stabilizer was an operative, the captain extended the flaps and slats incrementally, very slowly, to slow down the airplane until he got to 40 degrees of flaps. The final approach was done at 140 knots, which is a little bit fast. The airplane touched down hard on the runway. One would say, a hard landing.
1: That
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is a technical term.
0: It is. And actually, it was a hard enough landing that they blew out all four main tires. Oh,
2: gosh. (laughs) (laughs) They did not mention that in the air disaster episode. No, they did not.
0: They blew out all four main tires, and they didn't have their anti-skid braking, so the airplane also had a a lot of skidding. The airplane stopped just short of Taxiway Juliet on runway 27 Left, so it's only about midway down. After the shutdown checklist, both crew attempted to go back to the cabin, both flight crew attempted to go back to the cabin to help the passengers, but they were pushed back by the smoke. There was just too much smoke. The first officer used his window to exit the airplane, jumping 16 feet to the ground. The forward-left door opened first, followed by the forward-right door, and then the overwing exits, except for the rear-left overwing exit. Didn't open.
1: They just didn't open They didn't
0: it. use it, yep. The slides deployed for the two forward doors. The passengers worked their way through the smoke as best they could, not being able to see at all where the exits were. It was pitch black in this cabin. Mind you, this is still during daylight. Oh my gosh. But they couldn't see anything at all. They were having the worst time trying to find the doors.
2: One passenger said she couldn't see the door until it was dead in front of her.
0: Yeah. Wow. The first officer could see that the captain was still in the cockpit once he was outside, but he could see that the captain was also only partially conscious. He was sitting there kind of... Dazed. dazed. And he
2: was slumped over his
1: controls.
0: Yes. The first officer told the firefighters to try to spray the captain with the
1: oh, I fire remember retardant. <laughs> to wake him up.
0: Cause... Yeah, to get him conscious enough to leave the airplane. That plan did work, and the captain actually did gain enough consciousness to open his window and leap to the ground. Oh, good. He was the last person able to leave the airplane before the unthinkable happened. The cabin suddenly erupted in flames from the rear to the front in a sudden rush of an explosion.
2: I think they described it in the episode as a train. Of yeah, fire. As, as a
0: freight train going through the. a fire going through the cabin. So it just oh my went... God. <sighs> yeah.
3: And I'll talk about it more later, too. So how many people made it off?
0: The flight attendants rushed around, counting the people. They determined that 18 passengers and all five crew, 23 total, of the 46 people on board made it out. The other 23 passengers were consumed by the fire instantly.
2: Um, at this point, the flight attendant who was counting like kept going back and forth counting and then began wailing. Yeah. upset.
0: They found some people still in their seats with seatbelts on. And some of the people were clearly attempting to get to the exits but were unable to make it to the exits. Some of the people that were still in their seats were likely intoxicated.
2: They did find that three of the passengers had a blood alcohol content of 0.1.
0: So, I mean, there's drunk drunk people on the flight. Kind of common for the time, but also... There's a lot of smoke inhalation going on. Smoking was legal in airplanes. There was a lot of weird things at the time. They, just...
2: also, they also weren't the only ones. They did blood tests of, I think, the all 18 passengers that mm-hmm. made it off. And some of them were intoxicated, too.
0: Yep. So... And that was hours after the flight. They were still at a oh, wow. legally high limit. So
1: you'll see on here, there's two X's in that aisle that are toward the back. That's because they couldn't tell which way was the front of the plane.
0: And they, so some
1: people started going to the back of the plane instead of the front of the. They plane.
0: were found in the aisle. They didn't even know they had just passed the overwing exits. They couldn't they even couldn't see them. See.
1: Yeah. Man.
0: Three of the surviving Ow. passengers were seriously injured, but all others were minorly injured or not injured at all. Which is lucky. Really lucky. Most suffered from severe smoke inhalation. Yeah. The flames burned through the top of the airplane and created large holes in the top of the fuselage. This obviously fed the fire even more. Ooh. The entire internal of the fuselage was charred black, and the rear tail cone had fallen off. Emergency crews used this area, which was the rear bulkhead with the tail cone falling off, to access the rear end of the airplane and try to put the fire out.
2: In the picture we have on the website, you can actually see them shooting foam in... To the butt of the plane.
0: Really quick side note, because that's actually the last thing I have for this, but really quick side note, but the tail cone on the DC-9 has a really, really poor history. If the airplane made even a remotely hard landing, they would just fall off.
2: They actually talked, so they talked about this in the episode. It did not come in, up in the report, which I thought was odd, but this plane had actually had that problem before in <laughs> in
1: flight.
0: Huh. Yeah, the tail cone fell off.
1: Oh, that doesn't it's sound so- good. Was it a rapid depressurization? It was,
0: because the bulkhead actually got compromised in the process. Ah, Nice. This this exact airplane had had a depressurization problem. So,
1: okay, Uh, this is a little bit off on a tangent, but we've talked about this before. If you know it's a problem, why didn't you fix
0: it? Well, in theory they did. This airplane had 76 write-ups in in, In a year. In a year. Oh, Oh, oh boy. (laughs) For different issues. All of them were addressed, all of them were fixed, but this airplane had just a really bad maintenance problems. This airplane was a pig, as it would be known, or a hangar queen. That's an aviation term for it's in the hangar all the time getting fixed.
2: Which I end up not talking about because it wasn't in the report, so I didn't have a lot to go off of that was verifiable, I guess. That was all in Mm -hmm. the episode, which there are some things they said in the episode that aren't quite agreed with with the report, so I'm kind of sticking to the report on
0: this one. Yes, this was a particular... Sore point for this airplane, though, because normally DC-9s, in theory, actually weren't that unreliable. This one in particular, though, was.
2: Uh, Oh, man. And then I have... That's the lavatory. That's the lavatory. Wow! And that you can see out the tail cone.
0: Yeah, so this is the aft lavatory with the aft wall, and then you can see on the left side where the aft pressure bulkhead just wasn't So what we're looking
3: at right now is the sink.
0: And that goes all the way to the outside where the tail cone just doesn't exist anymore.
3: Wow, that is just
0: obliterated. Yeah,
3: That's completely crazy. Destroyed.
0: Yeah, they don't show this in the episode either. Now we'll get into how weird this was.
3: Yeah, please do, because I'm very confused. We
1: okay. uh we call this one, by the way, toilet, toilet fire. fire.
0: <laughs> That's what we've
2: been referring to it as this entire time we've been putting it off. Hey, when are we recording the toilet fire again? <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is why. Yeah. Although the NTSB was first on the scene, having gotten there within the hour, they were not the first to start investigating. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, or as the report spelled it, g, g-
1: Investigation.
0: <laughs> There was a lot of typos in this report. It was really weird.
1: It was typewritten, to be fair.
0: Yeah. So oh. it was like, there was a lot of weird things. There was a lot of places that were missing spaces, and yeah.
2: So, the Federal Bureau of Jinvestigation. G-
0: <laughs> the a- FBI.
2: A.K.A. The FBI. <laughs> Or the FBJ, as it were. (laughs) God, we're a mess. Okay. We're the first to perform analysis. They were delivered the following items from the aft lavatory. Samples of waste tank water, to which I'm like, (laughs) fiberglass insulation, an aluminum shelf, fiberglass flooring, soot deposits from the service panel access door, and a plastic vial and maintenance tag found on the floor.
1: Does the FBI usually get involved? Only if they think that there's foul play involved.
0: And there was some theories.
2: Okay. However, they were unable to find any flammable accelerants, and the soot only contained things you would expect from the burned panel and fiberglass in the walls. They also did not find any evidence of an explosive or incendiary device which would have left a chemical residue. So we haven't talked about Lockerbie yet. Lockerbie?
1: Locker. Lockerbie? Lockerbie?
0: Lockerbie. Yeah. Lockerbie.
1: At this point, bombs on planes weren't unheard of, so when something like this happens, the FBI, especially in the United States, the FBI kind of just makes sure that it wasn't a bomb.
3: Okay. (laughs) Because if it is,
1: they're the ones who have to do the investigation. I mean, this
3: definitely looks like it could have been, so...
0: Yeah, in-flight fires are rare, but also extremely serious events. And usually lead to the airplane being worthless in the end, as this one was. It was a whole loss. And beyond that, the, you know, anything done in a lavatory was kind of seen as suspicious. I mean, people could smoke in there and there was ashtrays and stuff and that was legal at the time. So there was a lot of theories floating around about could somebody have done something else and thrown something else in there.
2: Okay, so now the NTSB could get a move on. They initially had a list of five suspected ignition sources, though the FBI eliminated the first two of an in- explosive or incendiary device or deliberate ignition. The remaining suspects were a burning cigarette, the toilet flushing motor, or the flush motor electrical harness. They did find a sixth suspect later in the investigation, but I'll get to that. Let's start with the cigarette. One clue that bolstered all of these theories, actually, was the CBR which was successfully recovered, as was the FDR. At 6.48 and 12 seconds on the tape, investigators heard a staticky zapping sound that was identified as electrical arcing. We've talked about that before. It's what happens when wires are exposed to oxygen and electricity basically zaps like little bolts of
1: lightning.
0: Between the wires.
1: So check into Swiss Air, which I believe was episode 9, if you want to know more about that. This sound was repeated again three seconds later,
2: four times at 6.51, and twice more at 7 o'clock. The crew member said they did not hear these sounds. Both the CBR and FDR stopped recording at 7.07 and 41 seconds, which was when they were still in the air and they lost power.
0: That was exactly the moment that all power was lost except to critical systems.
2: So, makes sense. Now back to the cigarette. Uh, cigarette fire is not an uncommon problem, as this was during the time when smoking was allowed on planes up until 1995. Passengers would often smoke in the lavatory and then dispose of their cigarettes in the waste bin.
0: Even though there was... Ashtrays? Ashtrays. There were
2: signs on the trash bin saying not to put cigarettes in the...
0: But they put them in the trash bin anyways instead of the ashtray.
2: Let me show you kind of why, though. So, there's a picture of the lavatory diagram in the report there's also a weird typo. If you look over like where it says aft wall, it looks like a bunch of lines got moved over. So Nick photoshopped it to make more sense. I corrected
0: the problem I they know. had. <laughs> Much the report was just something was really wrong with that.
2: So you can kind of see that the ashtray is right next to the trash can above the sink.
3: Oh, okay. So people could have probably accidentally put it into the or
2: just been trash. lazy. They're or... like, eh, I'm almost there.
0: Yeah. True. I don't know. It was ridiculous. But yeah, they threw them, They would occasionally throw them into the trash bin, and it would light on fire. That was not an uncommon problem on the DC-9.
2: Or on any plane. Or on any plane. Oh boy. Since the majority of the fire damage was actually below the lavatory, that's where investigators determined the fire had to get to. So the f- cigarette would have had to cause a fire that propagated from the top of the trash chute to the lightning hole, which is spelled lightning, not lightning Where the flush motor harness wires ran through. It's basically a hole that has a huge snake of wires running through it. And it was, just for your reference, so you see all these amenities like the sanitary napkins, the sick bag, all that stuff? Mm -hmm. It's in the floor under that. So there's a hole going into the fuselage under the lavatory. Yeah. Okay. So there's a hole with wires in it. Now, there is a fire extinguisher built into the trash chute as it turns out, and it is a Halon fire extinguisher.
0: And it's totally automatic.
2: Yep. It did go off at some point, supporting this theory, but the lightning hole was several feet outward and well below the top of the trash chute. Investigators determined that it was unlikely that a fire burned from the trash to the Snake of Wires without being detected for 11 minutes. This was supported by the fact that there was trash in the bin that was slightly charred but not fully burned.
0: So even after the rest ah. of the lavatory burned, there was still trash in there that wasn't burned. So and
1: you saw that picture of the lavatory. Yeah, it, it was It probably was didn't start no. from the trash bin then. Correct.
0: Also, I don't think it said anywhere, but I don't think they actually found any cigarettes in it.
1: I mean, a cigarette would have burned.
0: Yes. Beyond recognition? Yes, probably.
1: Well, I mean, if they had filters, it might not have
0: Still. Anyway,
1: Anyway,
2: <laughs> but this theory does not completely rule out a cigarette, which was not mentioned in the air disasters episode, I might add. Let's take a look at the picture of the lavatory. Right above the sink is the wasteband, as I mentioned, and lower into the right is the amenities area with sanitary napkins, sick bags, etc. This amenities area was almost completely destroyed by the fire, so intensely that part of the aluminum shelf was melted. The back of this area is part of a void that is joined to the waste bin chute that happens to have a 4x4 inch that a cigarette could fall through if the trash bin was not properly secured. This notion is supported by a vial and a maintenance tag that were found in this area. This had been known to happen on other DC-9s in other airlines, too. So you would throw something away and it would end up behind the
1: amenities area.
3: So then, if that happened with a cigarette, then that would make sense that everything over there was completely burnt, but not the trash. Right. Can
1: you imagine being that one person that threw away your lit cigarette, and caused the entire plane to go down? No with flames. It's a bad oh. time. Can you just yeah. imagine, like the crew's like freaking out, and you're like, Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. "I just, I just had a cigarette back
2: there." Uh, you also might have died. Well, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> But you know, I'm like I'm saying like as they're descending, everyone's freaking out. Smoke starts seeping into the cabin, and you're just sitting there like you could also be drunk out of your mind. True.
0: <laughs> yeah, it turns but out there was people still a few you'd of those. be like
2: this is weird. I can't Damn. breathe. <laughs> so, in this instance, you'll also notice that in the lavatory, there is a cold air supply, basically an AC. It had been shut off at the time, but the pipe leading to that outlet had been melted in the amenities area, providing oxygen to the flame. Oh, no! The investigators were unable to rule out this cigarette-falling possibility. Another possibility, though. The investigators conducted tests to determine if the fire was caused by an overheated toilet flush motor. In this test, it resulted in high temperatures of 803 degrees Fahrenheit but it is not hot enough to ignite anything near the motor. And this also caused internal damage to the motor that was not found on the accident plane. Additionally, for this to happen, three different failures must all take place in order to have a flush motor overheat during flight. One, the motor must seize. Two, the flush button has to be pushed in intentionally or gets stuck in that position. And lastly, the 10-second cycle timer must fail. This timer resets the motor so that even if the flush button gets stuck, the motor will cycle to off after 10 seconds. This timer circuitry was found to be operational. Investigators determined that the flush motor was unlikely to be the ignition source. The next possible ignition was the flush motor wiring harness, which had caused the tripping of the three breakers along with the arcing sounds I mentioned earlier. This is that wire snake running behind this whole wall into the floor. As I said, they knew that this portion of damage wasn't caused directly by a burning cigarette, but they wondered if the hole around the wire snake could have caused damage as well. Were the wires suspended through the hole properly? Was there a protective ring around the hole to prevent chafing? They tested these theories and found that it would have taken a lot of force and effort to chafe away the insulation, and it was unlikely that this was the cause of the fire. Now for that sixth possibility I mentioned. Investigators found, while looking at that wire harness, a short circuit with a metal floor beam. There was a notch burned into the floor beam and chafed areas on both engine generator feeder cables that would have happened if wires were not properly supported at that point to avoid chafing. There is evidence that up to 40 amps of electricity was flowing through this wiring and would have provided enough heat to ignite this through the short circuit. Because of the extensive fire damage, though, investigators could not determine one way or the other if wiring was properly secured and protected and could not conclusively determine that the fire was started from a generator-feeder-cable fault. The long and the short of it is, investigators could not determine what ignited the fire.
1: But they do know it originated somewhere near the rear laboratory.
2: Now let's look at the path of that fire for a minute. Except for under the lavatory, the lowest and most aft point, respectively, of the fire were the amenity section of the lavatory and the aft pressure bulkhead. The fire traveled upward and forward as this was the direction of airflow, or of oxygen. If you look at the picture again of the left side of the plane, you'll notice a large rectangular scorched patch of skin by the number one engine on the left side. Do you all see it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see that yes. black
0: rectangle that's vertical? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly where the lavatory is. That's the contained within the walls of the lavatory.
1: Hmm.
3: Okay.
2: The fire ate through and used the space between the lavatory wall and the plane's outer skin as a flue, like a fireplace, leading the smoke and fumes to the ceiling, which then entered the cabin through the ceiling and the side wall liners.
3: That's where all the smoke came from. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. It was
0: then bleeding straight into the cabin from all of the walls no matter where you were sitting.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And then the plane
2: landed, and the emergency doors were opened, providing a feast of oxygen for the fire. As the passengers evacuated, the oxygen flowed further and further back until it reached the actual fire, and then the flash fire occurred, almost instantly burning everything in the cabin above the window line. Investigators said it was categorized as a mild explosion. Ignition marks indicate that the flash fire started near the ceiling in the rear and continued forward. So, now I don't have actually anything scripted about this, but the NTSB did spend a fair chunk of the report talking about the white- what the flight crew could have done instead of what they did.
0: There's a lot of controversy over this. Essentially, you remember that whole thing about... You saying that the captain should have made the executive decision to descend right then when they knew there was smoke? Yeah. And he didn't? Yeah. Well, it turns out a lot of the world also thinks that. And they were also really infuriated with this flight crew for not descending as soon as they knew there was a problem. Instead, they wasted about six minutes worth of time, and there was an airport they could have landed at, in theory, that was closer than... At
2: Standiford in Kentucky. Yeah,
0: Standiford, which was near Louisville. They could have landed at rather than Cincinnati. So in theory, they could have been on the ground earlier. They could have dealt with this fire sooner. Would that really have actually changed the outcome? We don't know. And the reality is is they were just trying to do the best they could. I, I can see both sides of this because the problem is they're under a lot of pressure. They know that cigarette fires happen in trash bins. They kind of assumed that this might be what was happening. So if that was the case, then this was something that could have been dealt with.
1: Well, and the captain was kind of getting mixed signals, right? Exactly. So the first officer said one thing. Yes. Uh, the head flight attendant said another thing. And then the first officer went back and came back and then was like, no, we need to land. So, I mean, you have to take into consideration what would you do in at that point. Right. So at one point during the flight, the flight attendant did say, I think the
2: fire is abating. The smoke is going away. And that was because he had sprayed it with... Fire extinguisher. So that helped for a little bit, but they didn't know that the fire was under the lavatory. All they did was suppress oxygen for a minute.
0: So it did appear that the fire was going away because the smoke dissipated for a minute, but then it started to come back And I assume it
2: was probably about then that it burned through that cold air supply. Yeah. So that would have provided oxygen through the wall
1: instead, still feeding the flame.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: So... Could they have done some stuff different? Of course. I think that happens with almost every crew we talk about though. And I think they did the best with what they had.
0: Eventually the flight crew actually got some awards for managing to land this airplane and getting having some survival rate. Yeah. You know, helping people survive. Half of the people on the airplane survived. So that's still pretty good, all things considered.
2: Now, after this report was released, the Airline Pilots Association did release a petition to basically back the flight crew for their actions. And the first officer wrote his own, in fact, saying, we couldn't have landed at Standiford. It would have been too steep of a descent. We could not achieve that descent without horizontal stabilizers.
0: Right. He was already putting as much force as he could, basically, on that control stick just to get it to descend for Cincinnati. And even then, the controller for for them at the time, had to direct them to a whole different runway because they were not going to make the runway that was intended. They were too high and too fast.
2: So the NTSB did revise their report to include the peti- the two petitions, but didn't really change their probable
0: cause. Which we'll get to in a minute.
1: Yeah. So we're going to take a little brickety break and we're going to get into findings and recommendations and things. Brickety break. Brickety break. break, to break. All right, so findings, recommendations, and such. As it is when we have a guest, I am covering these. Yeah. So you're welcome. All right, so findings. The first one, same as pretty much every other one, the plane was certified with FAA regulations. The
2: flight crew was certified.
1: The flight crew was qualified and certified, blah, blah, blah. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A fire propagated through the amenity section of the aft lavatory and had burned undetected for almost 15 minutes before the smoke was first noticed. So that's kind of something we didn't really talk about, but it, it had burned, burned bef- for
0: a long quite time. a
1: bit before they even saw smoke. And
2: yeah. I think that was determined from the zapping sounds they heard on the CVR mm-hmm. which of may- the initial arcing. Would make sense, yeah. Yes. That's so the- I'm
3: assuming that nobody used the bathroom then in this time?
2: Okay, so I had a feeling this would come up, and I didn't save where it was in the report. So, one passenger said, yeah, I used it like 35 to 40 minutes before someone smelled something, but I think there was another guy who used it between then, and I don't remember. And he never came forward, so I assume he died.
0: Probably, or just didn't come forward.
2: So, it was that guy. I mean, they could
1: have, to be fair, if it was burning underneath the toilet, right? And it wasn't showing signs of burning yet. You technically sense. could have. It probably the fire was the reason that the motor seized. So there wasn't anything in the toilet as far as we know. So no, it wasn't. They definitely said it was not the toilet motor.
0: Yeah. So they made a whole mock-up of the lavatory to test the motor theory.
1: So I mean, it did seize because the the uh, breakers popped, so it wasn't usable.
0: Right. So that's just a whole different yeah, situation.
2: That's. Different. Okay. They basically didn't know if it was the chafing in the wires underneath the floor, or if it was a cigarette that somehow made it behind the amenities area. They couldn't yeah. determine one mm-hmm. way or the other, so they just said, we don't
1: know. Right. It could have been either of these two situations. All they clearly
2: said was it was not a cigarette at the top of the fire chute, or the trash chute. It was not the toilet motor. It was not an explosive. It was not an incendiary device. It was not deliberately lit on
1: fire. Right. Yeah. Okay. The fire was not set deliberately, <laughs> nor was it the result of an explosive or incendiary device.
2: Sorry,
0: I, I took your uh... steal in the thunder.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the safety board cannot identify the origin of the fire. The first malfunction to evidence itself to the flight crew was the simultaneous tripping of the three flush motor circuit breakers about 11 minutes before the smoke was discovered. The flight crew did not consider this to be a serious problem, because normally it wouldn't be. Yeah. Again, someone just flushed something down the toilet. The smoke in the aft lavatory was discovered by a flight attendant. The smoke was reported to the captain as a fire. I mean, if there's smoke, there's fire.
0: That's a fair assumption. Yeah.
1: yeah. The source of the smoke was never identified either by the flight attendants or the first officer. The captain was never told, nor did he inquire as to the precise location and the extent of the quote, fire which had been reported to him. crew member reports that the fire was abating, misled the captain about the fire's severity, and he delayed his decision to declare an emergency and descend.
0: So that's where the NTSB blames it on him. And that's where a lot of people disagree. There's a lot of back and forth about is it his fault or is it not? Because yes, he didn't descend at that moment, but it is still kind of agreed upon that, based on all the information that was given to him at the time, He didn't assume that this was as serious as it was.
1: To be fair, as we said, he was getting mixed signals.
0: Really bad ones. (laughs) So,
1: I mean, is it 100% his fault? No. There was a fire, but they didn't know where it was and how bad it was. Yeah. Because of the delayed decision to descend, the airplane lost the opportunity to be landed at Louisville. Or Louisville. 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 Had the airplane been landed at Louisville, it could have been landed three to five minutes earlier than it actually did land at Cincinnati. The delayed decision to descend and land contributed to the severity of the accident, which they can't say that it wouldn't have been just as bad if they landed five minutes before.
3: I mean, wouldn't the same thing still have happened with once you open the doors, like, it probably, flash fire? Yeah, yeah. It
1: probably wouldn't have been as quick as it was. They might have been able to get more people off. So that's
2: the only thing I think I could argue, is that there would have been a bit less smoke in the cabin. Maybe more people could have oh, seen the exit. True. Yeah. So they said it contributed to the severity of the accident, not the accident itself. Yeah. Right. Okay.
1: The faulty ATC handoff did not delay significantly Flight 797's landing at the Greater Cincinnati Airport.
0: Which is why I didn't bring it up. Yeah, no, this wasn't really brought up at any point in time. They were actually transferred three separate times during all of this. But the reality is is that that wasn't a factor. Everybody actually, all the air traffic controllers communicated with one another along the way so well. This wasn't a factor.
1: Yeah. The fire consumed the lavatory walls, propagated into the ceiling, and then began to move forward. Smoke, toxic fumes, and heated gases began to enter the cabin, spread forward, and collect along the ceiling of the cabin. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. The flight attendants passing out wet towels to the passengers and instructing them to breathe through the towels or through articles of clothing aided to the survival of some of the passengers.
0: Yeah, it probably did. Like
1: I said before, them giving them to be like, don't directly inhale smoke. Yeah. Which you shouldn't directly inhale smoke. Right. (laughs) So... The first officer turned off the air conditioning and pressurization packs in the belief that the airflow was feeding the fire. The resulting loss of circulation accelerated the accumulation of smoke, heat, and toxic gases in the cabin and likely decreased the time available for evacuation.
0: So this was another point where they blamed him?
2: I wouldn't... So... They said that this may have happened, but didn't directly said it's his fault because wouldn't you have done the same thing? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well and the thing is is it probably was feeding the fire. And I could agree that, yes, maybe turning it off did help the smoke kind of settle forward. But at the same time, there's still an airflow in the cabin because it's pressurized. So in order to keep that airflow, they're still no matter what going to be feeding some air into that that fire.
2: So, I wouldn't necessarily take this as blame on the first officer, just like, don't do that in the future,
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't think he really knew no one knew that 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 would be the case if he turned those off. He right. was just so. doing what he thought was correct. Turns out to not be, but he didn't have any other indication
0: right
2: to say it was wrong,
1: yeah. Three of the four overwing exit windows were opened by designated passengers who had been selected and briefed to open them by the flight attendants. Good job, flight attendants. Yeah. This is where we say, please read the safety information card.
0: Which it's on there now, but it <laughs> wasn't before. Well,
1: okay, yeah, so I don't even know. Did they have safety information cards in 1983?
0: I, they probably did, but not. As it wasn't as, as common and it wasn't as detailed. This and wasn't, wasn't as regulated.
1: Yeah, right. so that's why you have to do that now, so that if something like this happens now, which it probably wouldn't, you know, but just in case... You know how to open the window so you can get out. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of things that come from this, and we'll get into that. Yes, we will. Okay. When the airplane stopped, smoke had filled the cabin, and visibility within the cabin was almost non-existent, two to three feet above the cabin floor. People were crawling, by the way. Which, uh, so, if you ever learned in school when there's smoke, you should crawl yeah you should probably do that anyway. makes sense, yes, because you're underneath the smoke, smoke floats to the top,
0: yes, and some people did this, but they were still in the smoke eventually because it was yes. so bad,
2: also you have the potential to get trampled,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, Ooh. which is also where I say, please don't panic,
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: did that happen on this one? Or we don't do know. We know that, okay,
0: we don't know
1: yeah, i don't I don't know. there were no details about it. doesn't mean it didn't happen,
0: mm-hmm.
1: A flash fire occurred within the cabin within 60 to 90 seconds after the doors and overwing window exits were opened. Flames from this fire were not evident until after the survivors had left the airplane. Flames from the original fire never were evident within the airplane or to persons on the ground. Wow, I didn't realize it was that quick.
0: It was that quick, but here's the thing. Actually, per standards now... For emergency situations with airplanes, this wouldn't have been an acceptable amount of time for an evacuation. That would have been too long. For the amount of time that there were still half of the passengers on board?
2: Yes, so... That
0: was too long. We'll get into why that is in a minute.
2: But I think the standard is you have to be able to evacuate everyone in 90 seconds. Yes. Wow. Now, currently, yeah. So we've talked about... I don't know if you've listened to the episode, but we've talked about A380s, which are massive double-decker planes. Yep. They can evacuate up to 825 people in 90 seconds.
0: 851 people. Okay. They managed to evacuate because they had to prove it in a test.
2: In a certification test. They loaded
0: 851 people onto an A380 and had to prove that they could actually evacuate that many people in 90 seconds
2: that was of course standing room only no seats
0: yep but which the airplane is certified to carry 151 people but they never have the most it's ever carried is i think 654 or something like that
3: point is we we have high standards for that okay was that the standard back then no okay
0: there's a few things that didn't help them in this situation that really really needed to be there
1: and are there now but let's Listen to this last finding. Which is literally, this was a survivable accident. Obviously, because people survived. Yes. So, probable cause as it always is from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were a fire of undetermined origin, an underestimate of fire severity, and misleading fire progress information provided to the captain. The time taken to evaluate the nature of the fire and to decide to initiate an emergency descent contributed to the severity of the accident. Yeah. So they put a lot of that on the captain. Uh, Which I'm not a fan of. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, it, it wasn't his fault. As we keep saying, he kept getting mixed messages from his crew. So
0: What's frustrating about this, and we'll talk about this as we go through the recommendations, this is the fact that they didn't know where the fire came from So they didn't actually have anything they could fix. Yeah. As far as the actual airplane's design for preventing this exact same problem from occurring in the future, they didn't have anything they could fix. This
2: exact fire could have happened again. Oh. Well, that's scary. But things were put into place to detect, which is the key word there, and to help evacuate.
0: Yes. Yeah. And eventually the DC-9s just became outdated so, obsolete one might say
1: these yep. recommendations are really weird i don't know how we want to do this because the first several are from different flights that had nothing to do with this
0: they're just reiterations probably
1: probably do you so, want to just summarize yeah. like so you can say for the first one so the first one was for uh, a 707 accident in paris in 1973 here's what the FAA, the recommendations were made to the FAA. Require a means for early detection of lavatory fires on all turbine-powered aircraft. So basically all commercial aircraft have smoke detectors.
0: Fire right? detector! Smoke detectors are critical. And they're definitely installed in all lavatories. Such
1: as smoke detector. Smoke detectors or operating procedures for the frequent inspections of laboratories by cabin attendants. So, when they say, please do not disable the laboratory smoke detectors... This is why?
0: They weren't in place at the time, but now they are. They're required. And if required. you do that,
1: and there's a fire... This could happen. So, that is why it is a federal crime.
2: Yeah,
0: by the way, it's like a mandatory federal sentence plus a million dollar fine or something like that.
1: Hold on, I want to look this up.
0: It's really, it's really high. It's, it's really high because it's a federal crime.
1: Yeah, so, it's, they're not joking... Like, just don't do it.
0: Honestly, it always amazed me that they ever let anybody smoke on an airplane. Especially yeah. pressurized ones.
2: So, apparently in 2008, someone did it. And they were met on the jetway with two cops, three security people, two TSA, and at least five United suits.
0: Ooh. There's a video that came out relatively recent, like, the last year or so, of some guy just smoking in his seat on an airplane, on a full airplane. And everybody was like, what are you doing? I think they landed and escorted them off. I
1: really too. want to find this. So they also recommended to require emergency oxygen bottles with full face smoke masks for each cabin attendant on all turbine powered transport aircraft in order to permit the attendants to combat laboratory and cabin fires. I don't think this, they did this. I mean, so the- they
0: probably did some form of this. They probably have some form of portable oxygen, but It's probably not like a full giant face mask. It's probably just a face mask. Just a nose and mouth mask.
1: They also recommended to organize a government-slash-industry task force on aircraft fire prevention to review design criteria and formulate specific modifications for improvements with respect to the fire potential of such enclosed areas as laboratories in turbine power aircraft operating under the provisions of Part 121 of the Federal Aviation Regulations, which is commercial aviation.
0: Yeah, what they did was ban smoking and make smoke detectors mandatory.
2: Yeah. So I'm finding things that say it's a $2,000 fine, which still sucks.
0: No, I knew it used to be a lot more than that. Maybe it's changed, but, yeah, it used to be huge.
1: It's probably
2: because it's not as prevalent now that smoking um, doesn't exist. It's common,
0: exist. yeah.
1: Okay, so the next set of recommendations came from a, an investigation from November of 1973 on a 707 again. Pan Am. It was Pan Am. They recommended to provide operators of the subject aircraft with data to enable flight crews to identify smoke sources and require operators to establish procedures in their operating manuals to control and evacuate smoke effectively during the specific flight regimes. Which, yeah, I mean, I don't think that would have helped in this case. Not
0: necessarily. Because
1: they really just couldn't see the fire. (laughs) They could see the smoke. They knew it was coming from the lavatory, but they Mm -hmm. didn't know where. Right. They also recommended to require that in one time inspection be made of all smoke goggles provided for the flight crew of all transport category airplanes to assure that these goggles conform to the provisions of the Part 25, et cetera, et cetera, of the federal aviation regulations. So making sure the, the smoke goggles work properly.
0: I don't think they really had a problem with that. It was more just that the f- the first officer kept leaving them behind.
1: And
2: didn't Whatever. wear them anyways.
0: Yeah, and then didn't wear them.
1: And then... I'm just gonna read the full thing because this is like crazy. As a result of two other lavatory fires, one on board a, a Boeing seven forty seven airplane on July seventeenth, nineteen seventy four, and the other aboard a Boeing seven twenty seven airplane on August ninth, nineteen seventy four, the safety board recommended the following to the FAA: require that automatic discharge fire extinguishers be installed in laboratory waste paper containers on all transport aircraft. So, and this airplane did have that. We talked about that. So I want to discuss this particular fire extinguisher that was on this plane.
2: You might recall, I called it like a Halon fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. Halon. Yep. So one of the recommendations further down, I looked at it recommended like, Hey, we should use these. They're so much better than CO2 fire extinguishers. They said never mind on that a couple years later because they found out that the components actually contributed to the uh, destruction of the ozone layer.
0: And not only that, but the people in the airplane had to breathe it in.
2: Okay, so here's my problem with it. I looked at the ingredients specifically and how they work. They contain halogen gases, which, if anyone remembers, their basic chemistry classes are things like chlorine, fluorine. Really dangerous things if they combine with hydrogen, which is what happens during combustion. My research shows that during incomplete combustion, these can attach to hydrogen molecules. Why do you care about that? Because that then forms hydrochloric and hydrofluoric acid.
0: (laughs) And then you breathe it in.
3: This was not mentioned
2: anywhere. I could not find anything about the possibility of this happening. And I think it would explain a lot of the really acrid smoke. And how it was burning their throats
0: wow. well, and furthermore, they said in the episode, and then we read in the pathological reports that you know there was all these so all these all this proof that they died of smoke inhalation, the so, passengers that didn't survive, but there was found, one particular standout ingredient
2: so the things that they found in their blood were cyanide, which we've discussed is present during smoke inhalation, which is why you die
0: yep, it's pretty common cyanide
2: carbon monoxide again
0: not good for obvious, you. Obvious,
2: but what they did find in relatively high amounts and they couldn't figure out why it was if it was significant at all is fluoride.
0: They never determined what the actual source was.
2: I think it was the trash fire
0: extinguisher. It's pretty obvious that the trash fire extinguisher probably once the smoke was flowing through the cabin, it pulled it sucked in the fumes from that fire extinguisher and threw it throughout the rest of the cabin.
2: So, this is pure speculation on my part with the limited chemistry knowledge that I have that potentially there could have been like some kind of vaporized acid in the air from this fire extinguisher. Again, pure speculation. I'm just blathering on about stuff I don't really know about, but am I that like far-reached to think it's a possibility?
0: Because they couldn't prove where else it came from. There was no materials in the airplane that burned to cause that.
2: Nope. So, the other thing from what I could find... Yes, these fire extinguishers are no longer used or at least installed in new airplanes. However,
3: they still have them in old airplanes. Yes. Oh, good. So fun fact, there's
1: a few things in the rec. I just scanned through the rest of the recommendations. There's a few we're going to go over, but there are, is, like, one big thing that I know came out of this accident that's not in this report? Do we want to talk about it right now? Yeah. So <laughs> here's one of the big things that came out of this that I thought would be in the report, but I can't find the recommendation for it.
0: And actually, I knew it wasn't because in the episode they said it was in the years after the report came out that they decided, the industry decided to add this. It didn't have any consequence from the report.
2: Okay. So you And it's in your safety briefing in every flight.
0: Yes.
1: So as all of you know, when you're on an aircraft and the lights turn off, there's little lights on the floor emergency that guide lights. you to the emergency exits.
3: They didn't have those Exactly. Yet. It wasn't so, standard. So you couldn't see anything Right, the smoke. So they decided, as what
1: Nick obviously just said, years after this happened, they put in emergency exit lights. And also, you have the giant exit sign on the top, it, at least in the front right. and the rear, that tell you where the exit is. Because part of the problem in this flight was it was so dark because of the smoke, they, can't, they couldn't find the doors. So that's why now, when you're on an aircraft... There will always, unless the aircraft gets ripped apart, which we've talked about a couple of times. Yeah. Because then, you know, the electricity flat out just doesn't work. Battery or not. Right. But, uh. In this case, see, it would have
0: helped them. Yeah.
1: You'll see on each side of the aisle, or aisles, depending on whatever, what kind of plane you're on, there are lights on. Um, the bottom on the floor sometimes are also on the seats.
0: Yeah, but they're usually on the floor because you're crawling. Right. Yep. And you just follow those until they turn and go toward the doors. Track lighting. Track lighting, and you just follow them out the door.
2: Are they ra- run on battery?
0: I think so, yeah. I so, think there's an emergency battery stand In this instance,
2: them. they would have been working. And yes. they would,
0: it would have saved some lives. If not all.
1: Sure. And currently, on airplanes that are built... I don't know, probably within the last 5-10 years, they're LEDs, so they're bright. They are bright. Although any kind of light at this point would have been helpful. Yes. So that was one thing, a big thing that the came big out, thing. the big thing that came out of this that actually wasn't in the report.
0: Another thing that became standard was another weird thing that
1: that I didn't know
0: about. We don't we haven't really noted when we go fly, but I'm really curious to start paying a little bit more attention. But apparently, because flight attendants and some people tend to follow their hands along the overhead bins as they walk down the cabin, they actually put specific bumps where the emergency exits are
2: oh. Huh? On like little those. tactile, oh, this
3: is the oh. exit. So as That's you're walking cool.
0: along, there's suddenly an irregularity, and that tells you, oh, I'm by a door.
3: Huh. Seems like they should tell people that.
0: You would well, think, but at the same time, most of the time you end up on the floor if there's that much smoke and you yes, just follow the track lighting.
3: Two, I also don't know for sure if those are
2: implemented and if they're implemented and regulated.
0: Well, and in place of that, I think most of the time they just rely on the big giant exit sign mm-hmm. that's hanging in the same place that's yeah. super bright.
1: Yeah, I I mean, if you're a blind passenger, that would be a thing, right, where you right. can feel. They probably know. yeah. So if if you're blind and you've ever had to be in an accident, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> which by the way would suck. So hopefully you haven't. I'm
2: but sorry. Let us know if if you're a flight attendant or crew or maintenance who happens to know off
1: the top of your head if those are there, let us know. Yeah, I guess. So basically, I'm gonna sum I'm gonna sum these up. I'm not gonna read them because we've kind of already talked about them. So the last couple which actually pertain to this flight not previous flights mm-hmm. have to do with the crew members taking immediate action knowing the severity knowing where they need to go etc right so everyone's on board together yeah and understanding the urgency of the situation so which s- i think is kind of bunk cuz
0: yes but i will say that the standard in airline transport operation or any Type of transport operation anymore is if there is any sign of smoke anywhere inside the airplane, the immediate action is to descend. That is number one. So that has changed. And I think that really was able to become commonplace when cigarettes were removed from the equation. Right. Because cigarettes being part of the equation, well, there's smoke. Eh, Somebody probably had a cigarette. You know, that. Was still kind of commonplace, so it wasn't totally out there to assume that a cigarette caused some minor fire that could be put out. Well, in this case, obviously, that didn't happen. Something much worse happened, a fire they couldn't put out. But once you took that cigarette out of the equation, then the industry was really able to say, if you smell any type of smoke at all, immediately descend.
1: Also, if you're a passenger and you realize that there's smoke or you smell smoke, tell somebody.
0: Immediately. Uh, don't just think
1: that, that that the crew members already know
0: right I mean it was good on that passenger that did say something immediately yes.
1: just you know just be sure to be it's about your safety too, <laughs> well, and you as a passenger are the majority of people on the flight, Yeah. so, yeah. so if you smell something that you don't normally smell in the air, immediately tell a crew member. And say, um, it smells a little weird over here. I don't know what's going on. Or I smell smoke. Yeah. Because you could be the one who ends up saving everybody's life. Yeah. Now, there is one thing I want to say to not
2: mislead people. When you're landing in humid climates or taking off from humid climates, occasionally when you are sitting at the gate, you will see... White smoke, quote-unquote, coming from the side panels. That's condensation. Yeah, it's condensation. That is normal. Don't freak out.
0: It's because the engine literally pulls that air in and then condenses it and compresses it and pushes it into the cabin.
1: That is yeah. literal humidity.
2: I know it sucks,
1: it's not going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, you can tell a crew member and they'll tell you, oh, it's just condensation. Yeah, And it doesn't have a smell, so that's how you know it's not smoke. It doesn't yeah. smell like smoke. It just looks like smoke. I just don't want to mislead anyone yeah. on that yeah. one. <laughs> the, most,
0: the most common cabin smoke incidents that happen these days usually come from behind the cockpit panel anymore. Because we went from using... Uh, manually operated gauges using gyros and pitot tube operated to now majority electronic instruments in the cockpit. So There's a most, lot of wires. Most wires that end up causing problems are usually in the cockpits these days. And that's why now it's a lot quicker for them to respond because when the smoke starts to fill in the cockpit, the crew knows it immediately and they descend.
1: Yeah. Also, they ask that... <laughs> There are manuals to show how you use the fire axe?
0: Okay, so I can talk about this one <laughs> a little bit. I can talk about this one a little bit, actually, because what happened, and I read this just very briefly, what happened is apparently it was part of their standard procedures that if the fire was not evident, that they were the flight attendant that knew where the fire was coming from, roughly, was supposed to use the axe to access the area to put the fire out. That was part of the operating procedure. That's procedures. the
1: next recommendation is to make sure they know that they need to use the fire axe.
0: And they didn't. And here's why. Because they didn't want to assume that this fire was anything that bad at the, at the moment. And so the lead flight attendant actually literally said, his excuse was, the, the axe is behind the captain in the cockpit. And if he went up to get it, the captain would have known. And then he would have assumed that it was a much worse situation, and the flight attendant, the lead flight attendant at the time, didn't think it was a much worse situation.
2: And people died. Yeah.
0: So there's a whole story behind that, and that's the gist of it. But basically, they asked him, "Why didn't she retrieve the axe and then cut into the the walls the in galley, the aft galley yeah. to get the fire?" And he said, "Well, I thought about it, but the the axe is behind the captain, and I didn't think it was a serious situation, and I didn't want to go get the axe where he would have seen me get it."
2: Also, here's my slight counter. Not saying that he should be excused for that in the slightest, Mm -hmm. but that would have also given it more oxygen.
0: Yes, I agree with that, too. So, I think that's why they didn't push the issue much more than that.
1: If they could see the fire, though, they could put it out with an extinguisher.
2: And that Um, was
0: the the theory, and that was what the operating procedure said to do.
2: I wonder if that's why the floor is made of fiberglass, which I thought was really odd, so that you could just axe Um, through it. Yeah, probably.
0: That and it's light.
1: Considering. Yeah, it needs to be light. I mean, it could have been made of aluminum.
0: Yeah, but fiberglass is nice, too. And flammable. hmm
1: <laughs> Yes. You don't say. So that's it for the recommendations, for the most part. And the resulting actions. Yeah.
0: So this, this flight really did change a lot of things, actually, when it comes to evacuations. And I think it kind of...
2: And fire this, detection.
0: This was one of those really big, like, take a look at yourself in the mirror moments for the industry. Yeah. Where they kind of went, wow, we've been really lackadaisical about a lot of things. And while this hasn't been a problem before, it's proving to be a big problem now. Yeah. And, uh. <laughs> and this should have been a lot more survivable. There were so many so many factors to it that I think the industry really took this one seriously. Even though, you know, the number of deaths wasn't huge and it wasn't, you know, compared to some, and half of the people on board still survived, there was still that shock factor that the whole industry went through. It was like, wow, you know, you any single one of those little things that added up to this accident would have been a big headline. To have all of that showed yep. that the industry was completely complacent.
2: Well, and then the scarier part was... They can't prevent that fire from happening in the future, so they need to prevent that severity.
0: Right. They needed to prevent the deaths over the cause.
1: So they also put a recommendation in that I didn't read because it doesn't pertain to nowadays where it seals off that little edge. That a a cigarette could have gone through. The little hole. The little hole. Uh, It wouldn't happen now because you're not supposed to smoke on airplanes. So that's why I left it out. Again,
0: the DC-9 became obsolete, too. Um, Eventually, we got the Mad Dogs, the MD-80s series, but those had some different developments. They were also bigger airplanes, so that changed things, and then now those are pretty much gone as well. So, and
1: like I said, you don't, you can't smoke in an airplane.
0: Yeah, everything's changed. Well,
1: technically, they weren't allowed to smoke
2: in the lavatories then. As it turns out, there were signs, but mm-hmm. people still did it, and people well, still
3: try to do it.
0: Yes, because they would rather just have you do it out in your seat where it's seen. And there used to be just ashtrays actually in the arm handles.
3: So why was there an ashtray then in the bathroom?
0: Actually, there's still, still there. Are. They're still there. Oh, because. Even if somebody does smoke in there, they would rather they have a safe place to put that cigarette out and put it away. So this doesn't happen? So that the airplane doesn't burn.
1: Even though you're not supposed to smoke on aircraft?
0: Right. So if they catch you, you get a big fine and you can safely put it out in the ashtray. If they don't catch you, you still put it safely out in the ashtray and then nothing comes of it. But, you know, it's that that whole thing of either way, the airplane's not going to burn in a fire.
1: If you want an infuriating story should check out our uh, BS uh, episode. two eleven two eleven 211, where the captain was smoking, uh, and that was like a couple oh. years ago. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, people still try to do it. Especially
2: with the advent of e-cigarettes.
1: <laughs> Which, by the yes. way, are also not okay. <laughs> That's also against right. federal regulations. It and is. vapes. You're not supposed to have them. I mean, you can have them, but you can't use them. Also, it's kind of just rude to do around people who don't smoke. Yes. Like, just wait till you get off the plane. If you can't wait that long, Get maybe... a nicotine patch. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus.
0: But again, we can't prove that this was a cigarette fire. They actually have no clue.
1: That's true. There were two causes that they figured it would, and they can't tell which one it was. They so.
0: can't ever prove. They won't ever know.
1: So that was uh, Air Canada Flight 797.
0: Yep.
3: Wow. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was...
0: A wild ride. That was a wild
3: ride.
2: <laughs> We've been wanting to do this one for a long time. Actually, do you remember when we were sitting at that wing place and we were deciding... do. Yeah, that's when we decided.
3: <laughs> I was, like, back in, like, February. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: A
3: long time ago.
1: Or it seems like forever ago. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want more content, check out the Patreon, which is on the website, all the stuff we talk about, pictures, diagrams, are on the website. Obviously, we have this is the actually, this airs on December 1st. So, happy holiday season, everybody. That. And our new theme for the aviation stories is holiday stories, holiday flights, whatever
2: you got holiday, holiday trips,
1: disasters.
2: Oh, <laughs> I hope not. She went there, not me. <laughs>
1: I mean, it could be a disaster in any sense, right? Like you had to go visit a family member and you didn't want to. Like I get it. I don't. All my family members live here, and I don't want to visit them. So <laughs> we all have
2: disastrous families in some capacity.
0: Um, uh, your 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 trip nightmares where the lines were horrible, the people were terrible, whatever. You know. Oh, we can talk
2: you're... about our uh, flight to Miami where they were playing "Let It Snow," and I was like, "The hell!"
0: Yeah. It's 90 degrees outside.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Also, this, I believe, is the episode that has the ad, so go check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast.
1: And uh, we hope everyone is staying safe and stay healthy. Please wear a mask. Please. We're asking for others, because obviously it's a problem. (laughs) So, anyway... We hope everyone has a great holiday season. We're looking forward to the holidays, and we'll catch you next week. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hod Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on
2: the platform you are using to listen.
0: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at Hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was
1: researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed
2: by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.